Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Evening Jones. Apologize for being a little bit late, but thank you to everybody who's showing up uh, a little bit off the schedule. Um, I'm guessing this is probably going to be the last time that I do hear uh, one of these shows in 2017. We'll come back in 2018. Um, shoot, Lance already getting his kick at all. Lance in California out there living a good life. Uh, I'm getting ready to figure out what I'm going to do for the holidays as they come around. I had my last day of work yesterday, so, you know, kind of in halfway chill-out uh, vacation-like mode, although I'm very, very bad at this. Um, I try from time to time to take it easy. I readily admit that I don't try very much to take it easy, but from time to time, I try to take it easy. So today was going to be a take-it-easy day. I had to schedule as a take-it-easy day. I get a text message last night from a man, Eric. Um, Eric is like, hey, uh, basically, I am the break glass in case of emergency guest for Jesus and Miro, right? Like if something happens and their guest cannot come, you see if I am available. Um, in this case, somebody missed a flight. They hit me up. And I'm like, you know what? I ain't really had time to go down there in a little while, even though it's in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is like a, like a totally different world as far as I'm concerned. But I say, all right, cool. I'm going to go ahead and do that. Man, I wind up doing that. I go down there. After I go down there, man, I wind up at the bank. Then I wind up doing some crimmer shopping. I wind up back at the crib. Start washing some clothes. Man, I'm here at the crib. I realize I kind of need to go out, do something else. But I ain't about to do it. Like, I'm not great at it. Not great. And I got like three weeks and change at least until I got to go back to work. It's actually closer to a full month, um, at least in the like traditional sense as I think about work. Um, yeah, let's see how I do. Let us see how I do. Anyway, I'm trying to think of anything uh, particularly interesting or um, adventurous has happened in my life since the last time I talked to you. I'd like to try to in part for you, you know, some of the funny stories of the, oh, okay, I feel like I got something for you. Nah, I was just going to, uh, we talked about last week about like the degrees of cold. And this, I will tell you about the degrees of cold, as I've told you about the degrees of cold, that I'm not going to really do a lot of complaining about the cold here because uh, MCs have the gall to pray and pray for my downfall. Um, you know, you guys want me to be cold because you felt as though I was being unnecessarily antagonistic to you when it was cold for you and I wasn't in the cold, you know, so I'm not really like going to get into that. But I will tell you that the temperature got into the 40s today and I'm not saying I was excited. Except I was excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what life's come to. Anyway. Let us move on to your questions. All right. How would you describe the legacy of Combat Jack in hip-hop media? Um, so those of you who don't know, uh, Combat Jack passed away um, today. He was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, I saw Reggie. His government name is Reggie. I saw Reggie um, when I first got here. Like Not long after I got here, I went down and did the Combat Jack show. He was recording out of some studio um, way downtown, like near the World Trade Center. And I remember I was down there, I was laughing with him because I'd done the show three times, and each time was in a different studio, but always a nice studio. But uh, each time was a different studio. And 
this is before, um, at the very least, he had announced that he had cancer. I had no idea when he found out um, or anything like that. But we were down there, and, you know, I'm kind of like dealing with that twinge of guilt that comes. And it's happened to me a few times over the years where it's someone that I probably could have made more of an effort to, like, catch up with and did not. Opportunity in the last five months for me to see him, and I did not. So it's just kind of like, you know, one of those things to consider. Now, the question was about legacy, and um, I don't blame anybody for asking a question about legacy because I know that people tend to have these discussions in these terms, and I know that other people have talked about Reggie in the context of, you know, what his legacy is. I would say um, on the other side, the man died like today, yesterday at the earliest. I don't feel like we need to start like stacking this sort of sort of stuff up in terms of legacy as of right now. Like I I I I don't like I say these are the things that people talk about. We do it really in sports a lot where we start talking about you know this idea of legacy. But for me, I a I think it's entirely too early and. For me, and this is just me personally, I can't say this about anybody else, but for me, I don't like, it's not like that was my best friend, but I don't think of him in that grand macro sense. I think of him as my relationship and my dealings with him. So, like, I was aware of him before this, but he started listening to the morning Jones and he paid us on the morning Jones, what I would consider to be the highest compliment that anybody can pay, which is that, um, he got serious for Howard, you know, like, so when I worked at the score, the score had been, it had been a recommendation to them not to really put like your heavy hitting content in the morning because so many people were there for Stern. So if they're there for Stern then you're not going to like put your best stuff against the franchise. We were up against the franchise and he would say that he would just take some time. You know, he'd listen to Stern and then he'd flip over and listen to us, you know? So the whole reason he got the subscription, he turned that off to come rock with us a little bit, which I always appreciated. And then when he got the podcast, I went on there cause I felt like, yo, you listen to me. I'm gonna come on here and I'm going to listen to you. And so his dude that had been, you know, in the music game, which is not the game that I was in, but not terribly dissimilar. But he'd been in that game for the longest. It had, like, the wisdom that came from being there. And whenever I go on the show, what I always found cool about it was he seemed to be, like, peeping what we were doing over here, like, with that feeling like he was a part of it. And I did the same thing with what it was that he had going. You know, like, I remember once he had some deal he was trying to negotiate, and I had, like, put him up with my agent, you know, to kind of try to see what he could pull off, you know, with that or whatever. You know, like, that was, that was kind of, like, my dealing with him. And so, and I don't. I feel like this is not terribly dissimilar for me to when Ralph Wiley died, where I felt I had these stories that were very personal and this appreciation for like the kindness that he had shared with me. And then you get out there and you look at everybody else and realize they got them stories too. You know, like it's not just, Oh my goodness. He thought you were so dope. No, man. Some people just got that in them. They got that spirit to them where as they can help, they help. And as they can do, they do. And that to me is, what I will remember about him. Now, if you want to like wrap that up and call it a legacy, I suppose that you could do that. But I think of that more as a good dude than anything else. And I think there's some general stuff that you could probably take from the way he handled his own stuff. Like one thing I think that I always took for Reggie, like I saw him at uh, the revolt music conference a couple of years ago, he did some panel 
And he talk about stuff like as a lawyer, like he did the deal for Dame and Jay and Biggs um, when Reasonable Doubt came out. Right. So you talk about that so you can floss all of that and then come right behind it and talk about I forget what deal it was he did for Noriega and talk about how he just messed that up completely. And then that was also interesting because shortly after he did that, Noriega just happened to like roll up wearing the black threes that had just come out that day. Drunk's Cootie Brown. It just kind of like, you know, commandeered the whole situation. But like we're dealing with a good dude, man. So take your time don't worry so much about this we got to figure out the legacy stuff man you know like let's just appreciate the life without trying to put it into some terms at least not immediately appreciate the question let me see what we got here how your pockets looking with this new tax reform like you need to get your punk ass up out of them michael mars how about that by the way i'm assuming it could be worse for me by the way i really haven't had a chance to look through it Either way it goes, I'm going to pay what they say. Er, appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. How do you feel about Ta-Nehisi Coates deleting his Twitter account? Have you ever thought about deleting your Twitter account? I mean, how do I feel about him deleting his Twitter account? I don't feel nothing about him deleting his Twitter account. If that's what he feels like doing, go ahead and knock yourself out. Um, to the question for me, like, have I ever thought about deleting my account? No, I have not thought about deleting my account, but I have like absolutely reconsidered um, the way that I use Twitter. See, the thing with me and Twitter, I don't remember if I've talked about this here. I've talked about it a little bit on Twitter, but I don't know if I've talked about it on this podcast. The thing about Twitter now that is wildly different from what it was eight years ago um, is I don't know when I am or am not talking to another human being. Like, I, ha- I have no clue. I have no idea. I have to go through so much effort to figure out if whoever that is that's in my mentions is an actual human being. And what's the fun in that, right? And so the problem for me is I don't, I don't have a great gauge on my end how much of that is um, that Twitter is so wildly different or how much of that is how different my profile has become in the last eight or nine years, right? I mean, so, like, I could say what Twitter was to me in 2009, 2010, but I'm a different person now, at least in the eyes of other people than I was at that point. So, like, no matter what, I'm going to wind up having to deal with a lot more strangers and a lot more people barking at the moon and, you know, all those things like that. Like, there's certain, like, there's a certain level of hassle that you deal with um, when you're visible that you just don't have when you're not. Now, with Coates, Coates, I mean, I thought he made a very interesting point right before he decided to chuck the deuce. He's like, I got the feminists, I got the leftists, and I got the white supremacists all coming at me at the same time. And he's like, yo, this isn't what I came here for. Now, the thing that I would argue on the other end is, while that's not what he came here for, like this is what it's going to be for him from here on out. And so you can get off of Twitter, and I don't blame him for that, but the problem or like that phenomenon 
is going to exist regardless. Now, my buddy Wright Thompson at ESPN uh, says something interesting on a podcast where he said he loved Twitter, and he made a very interesting point there. He said, look, man, why do I need to give you the right to motherfuck me? And that's the thing about social media at this point that, and I say, and I don't know if it, again, I don't know if it's this point. I don't know how much this has just really been the case forever. But I remember when I first got on, when people started, like one of the things that people would pitch to you about why you should get on Twitter was kind of the access that you had to quote unquote untouchable people. So, like at that time, I was dating a woman who was a foodie, and she would talk about how the big time chefs would be putting recipes on there in 140 characters. And, you know, that's like a really cool thing to have access to. She mentioned like Lance Armstrong would be up there, you know, back when, you know, people liked him. He'd be on there putting his workouts and stuff like that. Like, so you had a very interesting access to people with whom you would not ordinarily have had access. And then, you know, people kind of started tweeting back and forth for folks. And you could have a different sort of access. Like there's some people with whom I've become friendly in different ways while I've been a quote unquote visible person. Um, You know, so that was there. But I didn't feel so much then as though there were that many people who were on the platform just so they could scream at famous people or at least people that they had determined to be famous. Like, this is just their chance to just, like, holler at people and, you know, whatever awfulness is within them that they could let loose. And, again, maybe this has always been the case, and I just didn't know it because I was farther removed from the notion of fame than I am right now. But, no, I mean, that that isn't really that entertaining. Like, it's not really that much fun. And so, like, I'd be curious to know, myself how many people who have as many followers as i do try to exist in the space like a quote-unquote regular person because i try to kick it on twitter like i did when the thing first started when i was like undoubtedly a quote-unquote regular person is it possible like for somebody like me is it possible for me to exist in that space in the way that i want to i don't know I don't have an answer for that. Um, and so the question always comes down to me is if I can't kick it here like I want to kick it, then what am I doing? You know, like, does it have to become like a sterilized sort of corporate account that I always say defeats the purpose of being there at all? You know, like that that sort of becomes a question. So, yeah, I've never really considered deleting my Twitter account, but I have absolutely thought and probably like ultimately will kind of change the way that I kick it on there because like thing for me is people don't really bother me. You know, like you're not about to get on here and like, let me rephrase that. People don't offend me. Like there's not very much that you, a stranger can say to me that's going to hurt my feelings. You know, you don't know me. So you can't do that. Like that's not going to happen. You're not going to wound me, but you know, like waking up, checking your shit, and finding out that at like four o'clock in the morning somebody decided to motherfuck you. Like that's the wild thing. Like if like if you ever want to, like get up in the morning at like six o'clock or something like that and see what people send me when I'm asleep. 
I'm like, damn, like not even in reply to anything, right? Like it won't be like I just read something that you said and now I want to respond. No. Three o'clock in the morning. I just want to motherfuck you. Like who does this? Right? Like I don't, I don't get it. And so when I first got on, I was very fascinated by the human psychology behind all of this because I'd watched it happen to me gradually because my profile had changed gradually. So like I knew that I wasn't doing anything differently. It was just people, like maybe it was just access to more people, but I knew I wasn't doing anything that was any different than I'd done before. But the reaction, um, just wound up being totally different. And that was kind of, you know, interesting to watch. All right. Well, now I know how it goes. I'm not learning anything else. I'm not getting any greater education. And so you do just kind of look at yourself and just be like, you know, so what exactly is it that I'm here for? And I'm telling you, it would just be a whole lot more fun on the Twitter if I repeat, if they were just a little more dedicated to like making sure that people are kind of real. But uh, when you need your user numbers to be high. In order to keep that stock price where you want it to be, then that's what it's going to be. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else you got. By the way, just as an FYI, Nick, if your question starts with not that it's any of my business, you should probably stop right there. And not that there's anything necessarily wrong with your question. I'm just not the right person to answer it. Um, but if you have to start with not that it's any of my business, shut the fuck up. Wow. Some of you really ask the dumbest questions and think that I'm going to answer them. This reminds me, by the way, one thing that I have to say that I do realize about like my time on Twitter, why I probably need to adjust the way that I do it, man, I ain't here for none of the nonsense no more. Like my patience for silly questions is so low. Some of y'all be catching strays. And I apologize kind of for it because it's not necessarily your fault. But yeah, man. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's whatever. Anyway, let's stick with the Coates theme here. Do you think Coates is overly pessimistic on the potential of black resistance in America? Like, so this Jonathan Chait kind of started this. I don't know if it's last year or the year before with this notion of Coates the pessimist. Um you know, and Coach has talked about this where he feels like, and he talked about that in the interview I did with him for Playboy, where the people who call him a pessimist, he just feels like those are people who have run out of ways to counter what it is that he has to say. Now, I guess Cornell West is another person um, who approached it from the standpoint of, um, you know, was it just this idea to, you know, I guess I've seen people say that Coates does not have enough faith in black people's ability to overcome or something like that. And I would argue from what I've read of Coates' work, I don't think he's ever had any issue such that um, you would say that he is somehow downplaying any ability that black people have. But this game is kind of structurally built in such a way where, I mean, why would you not be pessimistic? But serious question, like if you are operating from any position of like being informed, why, why would you not be pessimistic to a degree? Right. And so 
where I think we ultimately get, and I think that this is, I mean, this is a fundamental divide between Coates and West, which is the Coates is an atheist. And so I do think that, like, growing up and living your life in the Christian tradition, I feel like the, like the functional value of Christianity as a religion is kind of the optimism that it gives you that something better is along the way. Um, Coates ain't buying that. He's not. And I think we got a lot of history that says that whether you want to agree with him or not, it's very difficult to say that he's wrong. Now, where I thought that West, I'm like flipping through this, this Cornell thing again because I had trouble reading it all because it just felt like, oh my God, just blast after blast after blast. Um, Cornell believes, and this, this is actually very ironic, you know, me knowing what I know about Coates and reading what uh, Cornell has to say. So here's a, a quote here from Cornell. Coates revels, his, Coates reveals his preoccupation with white acceptance when he writes with genuine euphoria. As I watched Barack Obama's star shoot across the political sky, I had never seen so many white people cheer on a black man who was neither an athlete nor an entertainer. And it seemed that they loved him for this. And I thought in those days, they might that they might love me too. Now, one thing I think that's disingenuous in the way that Wes has pulled text in different interviews from Coach's last book, which I still need to finish, is all those essays that he pulled that he had written during Obama's years, they were all written and also with like like addenda to them about what he saw differently since then, what he wrote that he did not think was correct, where he ultimately believed that he missed the mark. And so I don't feel like you can harvest the quotes out of that book without giving some context about what he had to say about whichever piece it happens to be. But I have never gotten this feeling that Coates is that concerned with white acceptance. I also believe that there is a certain degree of irony of somebody who does what Cornell does while only working at these Ivy League institutions talking about somebody else's thirst for white acceptance. Now, the irony that I was going to point to before is that what Coates believes has spurred so many of these people from Bell Hooks to Cornell West, you know, Glenn Lowry is another guy that he talked about, like all of those. What he believes has spurred so much of the criticism is the fact that white people are watching. That Coates has become the person that white people see, right? He's become the one that white people view right now. He's the black dude that white people are willing to listen to. And that there are people on this other end who are then jealous of that fact. There seems to be a theory that has some basis in truth. On the other end, Cornell West comes around on the other side, and Cornell says that what Coates wants is the acceptance of white people. What Coates does as it relates to Obama, because once again, Cornell has all his issues with Obama, but what Cornell does, what, what Coates does as it relates to Obama is he has a great appreciation for the symbolism of Obama being president. He also believes I, i've heard this criticism it was this criticism i heard about tavis smiley and about cornell west and the ways that they viewed obama is that they had something in their minds is what they imagined the black president would be like and obama was not that i would argue that for a black person to be the president of the united states it kind of had to be obama 
you know, like the 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 superhero, like Richard Pryor type black president that we may have imagined. Ain't nobody electing him. What are you crazy? Like, nah, that's not going to happen. That being said, there are a lot of people whose names that you do not know who are very important to what has been kind of black politics over the last 50 years um, who despise Obama. And they despise Obama for a lot of the same reasons that Cornell West despises Obama. Um, But a lot of those reasons are like, this is what the job of the president of the United States ultimately winds up being. West seems to operate from a position that has no like respect or appreciation for that. You see what I mean? Like, he's like, okay, that's what the president does. Well, whoever the president is, I can't stand. Now, it does appear that Cornell West has more vitriol toward Obama than he has toward Trump, which is its own interesting thing to like keep a watch on. But Coates does seem to be like, okay, look, this is what the job is. This is how it is that you have to do that job. That seems to be his view on some of these things with Obama. But also, I've never found him to be like an Obama sycophant or anything. Um, and I did not think that the the point that Coates has made over time, that the presence of Obama did give rise to like a class of black political punditry and a whole bunch of people that wouldn't have gotten work otherwise. Dude, never forget the CNN after Obama got elected was so desperate to find a black person to get on TV to have a show that they gave one to D.L. Hughley. You remember that? Like that did happen. You know, like, like that was a thing. Like, I don't I mean, it's there. But one thing to remember in this, the rise of Obama did not get Cornell West any more work. It didn't. It didn't get Cornell West any more visibility, really. It did not. But to answer the question, is Coach overly pessimistic? Tell me why Coach should be optimistic. Seriously. Just, just tell me why. Other than it's the right thing to do. I mean, do you have anything there? Now, in terms of Cornell, like, was his criticism fair? Eh, I mean, I guess some of it. Some of it. But not, like, you can't get past the fact that it is, like, crazy petty. It is crazy petty. But when Coach says here, Coach praises Obama as, as quote, deeply moral human being while remaining silent on 563 drone strikes, the assassination of U.S. citizens with no trial, so forth and so on. Like, I mean, there's a discussion to be had there. There's a fair point to be had there. The idea that that means that Coates is a neoliberal. I don't know about that. Now, of course, Coates will tell you, and he did before he deleted the account, that he has written many things that have criticized Obama for those, you know, for those actions. But I do think the idea there's a fair question to be asked about how deeply moral he is. If you find those things that Cornell West listed to be amoral, it's a fair point. It's just wrapped up in all that petty that makes it hard to see. Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. Wow. Michael asked so many questions. We can all agree that the black thought funk flex freestyle is in a class of its own, right? I mean, I guess it's in a class of its own. Like, I don't even need to talk about this comparatively. It was an incredible nine and a half minutes. Now, I mean, if you haven't seen it, go ahead and look it up. Here's my question about thought and that freestyle and the way that we we respond to thought and that freestyle. Why were they never bigger? Does anybody really have an answer for that? Why were they never bigger? The roots are 
how's best to put this? Like they are the critically acclaimed rap group, right? I mean, rap band, if you want to do it that way, okay, cool. But that's them. Like, like critically acclaimed. That is what they get. They I mean, from the very beginning, they were a band that critics absolutely loved that never really got it cracking in the streets in that way. Um, did the roots have anything that came close to qualifying as a hit before you got me? Like anything at all. And to be fair, when you go through the first three albums, and I'm counting organics as the first, um, like where's the single? It's not there. Like if I'm not mistaken, the first single for Do You Want More was Distortion and Static. Um, you know what you call it? Like Silent Treatment is one that maybe would have had a chance to hit. I know what well, Clones was a single off Hill of Death, Half Life, Concerto, The Desperado was one. And these are all dope tracks, but they it never quite like hit in that way. Now let's take this back to thought. Thought has everything really that you want an MC to be. Thought, except for the fact that like thought doesn't really like people like attention that much. Thought cool as hell. Thought could rap his ass off. Thought got some gangster to him. Um, all of that, every single bit of it. And thought came up in an era where the ability to rap mattered you know like being a dope mc was a thing then you pop up in 2017 and he killed and he drops the ill freestyle and everybody's just like oh my god black thought he's so incredible you know i can't think of anybody who's better than him and at once i don't feel like they're being disingenuous because i feel like the people who were saying that were always saying that but even with us always saying this and like reciting lines and everything else it never like quite hit that way so like you get people talking about they top however many mcs how many of them are really putting black thought in there like there's a subset of people that are putting black thought there but how many of them are really putting black thought in that list now you tell me this I, and this is the way i probably put it best i am not saying that black thought is the best rapper of all time i'm not saying he's the greatest mc of all time i'm just asking you to tell me who's better no, really, like, one, name them. Who's better? Jay-Z, like, go listen to that freestyle and tell me Jay-Z better than him. Right, go listen to that freestyle. And as cold as Jay-Z is, go listen to that freestyle. Tell me Jay-Z can do that. He can't. And that ain't no shade to Jay-Z. Who else you got? You think Biggie Smalls could do that? And Biggie Smalls cold as hell. You think he could do that? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Look in the chat room. You know what happened. No. Eminem can't do that. <laughs> he can't do that. As cold as Eminem is, he can't do that. He doesn't have that presence. He doesn't have that power he doesn't have that gift for metaphor and eminem is cold as hell lance get this zach dude out of here because now he's just being a dick he's just throwing people out there for the hell of it but no man ain't nobody i mean you just go listen to thought who's better than that but i don't mean he's the best there's a lot going on there anyway don't worry zach you can come back the next time we do it but you have to go today Appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. 
What is the thing that you will miss the most about doing the radio show every day? So um, for those of you who do not know, I've been doing a radio show called The Right Time on ESPN Radio. Been doing it for two and a half years. Um, actually, it's close to three. But anyway, um, we started from 9 to 11. We did it there for a few months. We got moved up to the afternoon drive slot um, after that. Um, and yesterday was the last day for me to do the show on the radio. Now, what will I miss the most from doing the radio every day? Well, that's in, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to miss working with Shannon. Like that's, that's, that's the easiest thing of it for me is I will miss working with Shannon. Um, beyond that. So I remember when I first started writing, I didn't know that there was some perceived difference in prestige between writing on the internet versus writing in the newspaper. And so I didn't, the kind of sentimental attachment that people have to their local newspapers, I didn't really have a grasp of that at all. I didn't, I didn't um, get that. And so I remember it's like some newspapers started closing down and started changing their, you know, publication schedule and stuff like that. I would a think more about the people who worked in the newspaper game that I, you know, met and had come to know and would read stories about people and how it was, they'd be sitting, they'd have these arguments and how the, the deciding factor in those arguments would be like what was in the newspaper was in that physical newspaper. It just like how important the newspaper itself was to people's kind of everyday habits, right? Like the idea that people, you know, sat at the house or got up in the morning, went outside in the yard, picked up the newspaper, brought it in and read that thing from cover to cover. And that there was a very, there was a particular cachet to the idea of actually being in the newspaper. You know, I was thinking, yo, it's the internet. I can send it to anybody. But, like, it meant something to be in print. Like, I have been in print very, very rarely. But the things that I have done in print, like, I go buy them and I keep them. Like, there's a, there's something to that. And analogous to that is the radio as it relates to the kind of podcast and the way that people are doing things digitally. And the radio is part of people's habit. So I can tell them that there will be a podcast and their cars can have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and everything else that will allow them to listen to whatever this podcast is via their phone or whatever device they have to use. But it still ain't the radio to them. It's not. And so for me, when I made this decision that I wanted to go to podcast. There's some reasons behind it that perhaps at some point I can explain that I just don't think are appropriate to discuss right now. Um, but I believe for me, for a number of reasons, it was kind of a better thing to go do it as a digital property. Um, one of them I will explain shortly. But what I will miss about doing radio is being like a regular part of people's lives in that way. You know, like the people telling the stories about riding home and they don't even like sports, but their husbands put it on and then they listen together and it becomes a thing that they can share. And, you know, they say the kid will be in the back and the kid might like listen to it and it becomes something that they could share um, in that way. Like I will miss people 
giving me the pleasure and privilege of being parts of their lives in a way that new media doesn't really allow you to be part of someone's life. Like this is the thing you do when you get off work and maybe you can do that, you know, you know, via the device or everything else. But there is something to the idea that we're doing this live. Like you get it as it happens. There's a certain, I think, excitement for a lot of people when they listen, um, when they do that. And that's something that I kind of gradually came to understand and grasp over the years. And I will certainly miss being parts of people's lives in that way. Now, for me, um, and some of you have been doing this with me for a very long time, a very long time. Like, I'm not really a New Jack upstart anymore. Think about this. I started doing the three-hour lunch break, which is my midday radio show in Raleigh, for those of of y'all who go back. Um, Dude, that was starting in August of 2008. Like, I started doing radio. In fact, I started doing Saturday morning radio the first weekend of January in 2008. Dude, that's 10 years ago. That's what that's about to be. That is... 10 years ago like i've been doing this for a long time and i've been doing it at a pretty significant like rate of output um there have been some levels of fluctuation at different points but like when i was working at the buzz i was doing 18 hours of radio a week and like everything i did in my life was really focused around that radio show and then i left the buzz and i went to um to the score and I was doing the same thing. Now it was 15 hours a week. I was getting up at seven, you know, to do the radio show at seven o'clock in the morning. I do that three hours a day. And then it'd be a grind to figure out, you know, what it is we're going to do the next day. And then after that, we started adding in the TV appearances. So now after I'm doing that, and I'm 10 years young, you know, I'm much younger then than I am now. But I start doing that. And then we start adding in, like I said, we start adding in the ESPN stuff. And then we started adding more and more of that. And then, you know, I did the SB Nation thing or writing a column a week. We're shooting two videos a week, you know, all of that stuff. And then when I first got to Miami, I didn't have that much work, honestly. You know, I do a couple of days a week of Around the Horn. I do Highly Questionable. Um, and then I started doing the radio show. And I kind of got to chill out a little bit. Like I do. Um at some point in doing all these things, you kind of got to look out for yourself a little bit. And I have been, I wouldn't say maniacally driven. I wouldn't even necessarily say singularly focused because different things and people have come into my life at different points that have um, merited a level of my attention to take away from this greedy beast that uh, of work that I've been on. But I kind of looked up, at the end of all this stuff with this year, like everything of significance, like with the exception of my parents, everything of significance in my life has flipped up one way or another, really in the last six months, every single bit. And for the first time recently, I felt kind of tired. It's kind of weary. And I never really felt that about work or anything else before. And especially it's kind of weird now because, I mean, I'm still doing 15 hours of radio a week, which is a full-time job, but that's 
less than I had been doing for like the last two years. And, you know, how long can you keep doing that? And so we got this new TV show that's coming. And me and Pablo are really excited to get to work and get that built and have something out here, you know, that the streets can love. But like doing 15 hours of radio a week, plus doing a television show for the first time, it all like felt like too much. You know, like for for the first time, I really felt like I needed to, I needed to, I need to do a better job of taking care of myself. Not that anything is wrong with me, but I need to do a better job of taking care of myself. Like in the course of doing all this work and in the way I do it, there's a lot of like components to a social life that I have sacrificed. Um, I need to take better care of myself. And in a number of ways, I'm kind of proactively planning to do a better job of taking care of myself. But I'd also say, like, for those listening, I'm not the only person who is not the same job, but I'm not the only person who probably has the same approach to doing things. And you got these places that you want to get and see for me, the thing about the places I want to get is I never knew what the places were. Like, there's never been any one place where I'm like, ooh, that's where I want to end, where I want to end up. I've never had the place. I just needed to work my ass off. So that if something came up that I could do, I would be able to do it, you know? Um, and now, like, I kind of got things going that I can settle into, you know? Like, there's a TV show that's, you know, in large part built around me. How the question but wasn't built around me. And I mean, I don't just to be clear, I don't have any problem with that. There's no resentment over it. But that show existed before I got there. We just pulled up another chair and I found a way to get in where I, get in where I would fit in there. But it wasn't my show. This show will much more so be mine in that way. And I want to focus on that. And I want to see what we can do in that space. I mean, it's mine in the sense it's mine, no more, you know, no more mine than it is Pablo's, but that's still more mine than Highly Questionable was. And so we're going to do that. And I am very interested in the podcast space. I know how to put together a radio show. Um, I don't really know how to put together a podcast. So I'm going to work with some people and we are going to figure out how to put together a podcast. We're going to figure out how to absolutely maximize that space and to try to make it as good as possible and to, you know, lean on the creativity that the digital space affords. Like I am native to the digital space. That is what I am of. That is where I came from. That is where my sensibilities tend to be. Um, and so we're going to do that. But hopefully in the course of doing that, I'll also get myself a little bit more rest. You know, so like I can tell you this, like this is kind of how my life goes. Um, I get up about seven, you know, maybe seven thirty. Then I get up. And with the exception of like when I'm in the shower. Once I'm up, we going it's time to start figuring out what we're going to do for this radio show. That radio show didn't end until seven o'clock. You understand what I'm saying? You know? And so I am looking forward to 2018 to be a bit more. It's a different focus. It's a different focus. It's going to take some time to kind of relax and chill out and, you know, get a little better in touch with me, do a couple of things in that regard. And no, I think this is all um, going to be very good, but 
to get back to the original question, I have, like, I met Shannon in 07. And it was funny because I remember we were both engaged at the same time. You know, I met him then. Now he's been married for almost 10 years and I've never been married. Um, but I've known that dude for like 10 years. And like when he had his day job, I used to stop by all the time, right? Like I come by the front desk. Sometimes I come by, leave my house with house, sho- with like house shoes on and I show up at the spot. Or and then it would get gradually change and I would stop by on my way back from like doing around the horn, you know, so I'd be there in the suits and stuff like that. And so like the managers there and everybody else always knew me, you know, and everything like that, like that, that's what our relationship is. And one thing, one thing I really like love about him as a person and just kind of working with him is I've made a lot of moves since he and I first started working together that did not involve him. And this move to agree to a degree does not involve him. He'll be producing Freddie Coleman and Ian Fitzsimmons show on ESPN radio. And a man been happy for me every step of the way. And not everybody would do that. Not everybody is like that. And that is absolutely what I will miss the most out of doing radio every day. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to watching rather the evening Jones. Uh, We try to do this thing here once a week. And, of course, before we go, this is our last show of 2017. And for those of you who do not understand, this podcast works and this podcast goes because of Lance Gilliam. All I really have to do is plug up the microphone and get to the questions and just run through them. Lance sets up the site. Lance works the chat room. Um, Lance gets the podcast produced and up and everything else. And, look, Lance ain't some dude that just, like, started as a podcast producer, right? Like, that was the thing that needed to be done and he figured out how to get it going and how to do it. And he does it. You know, there's so many things behind me and what I do that people don't see. And that is totally Lance. Um, we've been doing this podcast now for, I guess about, you know, six years and change. I've known Lance about that time. And the thing I can appreciate about Lance and the way that all this stuff goes on my end is, Lance works on all these, all this stuff like it's his. And I feel like when good things happen to me and there's some level of success that comes to me, um, that is also Lance's success. And none of these things could happen without him and the work that he does like Lance in California now, right now. Right. So I was like, you know, we do a call every Monday morning and I'm like, look, man, we can, you know, push that back. We can do it at 11, you know, so you get some time to get up or whatever it was. We normally do it at nine. That fool would have been up at six o'clock in the morning to do that damn meeting. If I had said, let's just do it on the same schedule. You know, and of course, I mean, it'd be preposterous to allow that to happen, but you know, this is, this is not, this stuff is not a, it's not a really just like simply a product of my brilliance or anything like that. It is very much so the result of people who do not have to treat the things I do with the care with which they treat it. And I am incredibly fortunate for that. Um, also 2018, we'll see how it goes. I'm going to see. I like I had this podcast tied into my contract with ESPN to be allowed to do it. I never have any plan to stop doing it. Um, but I am going to take a little bit of care of myself in 2018. 
So the frequency will probably be the same, but the frequency might also slow down. There might be a point where we take like some level of hiatus from it or whatever it is. But I would say that 2017 for a lot of people who listen to this was a bit of a trying time. And I would say in 2018, let's all do a better job of taking care of ourselves. All right. See you guys next year.